Well, friends, good morning. Thanks so much for gathering here. Thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary this morning. And for those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint uh, at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room and wherever you happen to be tuning in from. Uh, if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, we've never been introduced. My name is Jamie. Uh, it's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Um, I really do mean it as I say that that every week, but it is a, a great joy. It's also a great joy to open up God's word with you all. Uh, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know we are in a series uh, looking at the origin story, like going all the way back. It's a series that we're doing uh, through the fall. It'll take us up to Advent, looking at the first 11 chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter one through 11. We finished Genesis chapter one last week. And this morning, we're gonna pick the story up in Genesis chapter two, verses one to three. And so if you have a Bible, I wanna encourage you to turn there. There are Bibles in the pews this morning. You can grab one of those. You can also scan the QR code in the, the pew in front of you. Uh, that'll bring up a menu where you'll see an option to click sermon notes and the text will be there, space to take notes. Stuff that I put up on the slides will be there uh, as well. So if there's some quote and you're like feverishly trying to write it down, it's there. Like you can save your hand cramp, all right? Um, and just uh, try and get it that way. Or you can always go to thisiscp.church and click that next steps icon. Let me say this before I read the text. Um, if you know this about the, the scriptures, uh, when we say chapter two or this verse, like those markers didn't exist in the original text, all right? Like Moses wasn't writing it. And now chapter two, all right? It's this one continuous story and this flow. And in many ways, it's kind of been mismarked. I mean, this feels like it should be included as the end of chapter one, as opposed to being the start of chapter two, because it really is the continuation of that first week of creation. We're looking at day seven this morning, which is Genesis chapter two, verses one to three. So if you would, if you're able, please stand as I read God's word this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. Genesis two, one to three. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as I was thinking about this particular text, one of the things that we're gonna see in a moment is there's this repetition of phrases. There are things that are clearly trying to be emphasized here by God through his servant, Moses. In fact, one of the bigger themes of these opening words, these opening verses, this opening chapter, and as we get into chapter two, is God is showcasing for us what he has provided in his creation and how to actually live in the flow of what God has created, to not work against, to not go against the grain of the universe. And it's got me thinking about as a kid, um, I grew up in Michigan, I lived there until I was 13. And we would get these rare moments where the sun would actually come out um, and you could be outside in the, in the summertime. And my family, we grew up and we had one of these in, in our backyard, all right? So we didn't have one of those fancy in the ground pools, all right? This is what our pool uh, looked like. Um, and it was this long oval shape, looked something uh, like what you see there in the picture. And so my you know, siblings and I, we would, we would swim and our neighbors would come over, our cousins, whatever, we'd be, we'd be hanging out. Now, one of the things that we would often do after swimming for a while, you're always looking for like, what's the new thing? What are we gonna do? What game are we gonna play? And we would do this thing. Somebody would say, ooh, let's make a whirlpool, all right? Now, some of you might know what I mean by that, but if not, let me explain. What we would do, because there wasn't really this designated deep end, it was kind of like all of the same depth throughout. You could walk around the entire like inside edge of that pool. 
And so we would all start moving in a particular direction. And we would all kind of line up and there we would follow the long edge of the oval and we'd make the curve and around and around we would go. And we'd go once and we'd go twice and we'd go three and we would just keep moving. Now, if you've ever done this, you know that the more you begin walking all together, it starts to cause the water to flow in that direction, right? So you're like, yeah, I get it, right? It's not that hard to comprehend. But like, so we would do this. And as kids, what we would, what we would find is like, the more that we walked and the more we moved in the same direction, the easier it actually became to actually walk. And there were times when you'd get to like the long edge of like the, the side of the pool that you could sort of like lean out like this. And it would just sort of take you along, right? Until you had to make the, the curve again. And it was just like every step created more movement. And then somebody would yell, switch, all right? And you would have to like turn and go against the current that you had just created, all right? And it was always this sort of competition to see like who could make it the, the furthest, who could do it without like having it take you back, right? I never won, but you know, no big surprise there. But walking against it. And in the, those moments, you went from this time of like, hey, I'm with the flow and it's going and it's getting easier with every step to like, oh my goodness, like it's all coming against you. And what was suddenly this ease of movement became strenuous and difficult. And the more you push against it, the more tired that you would get. And friends, it's that sort of image that Genesis 1 and into the beginning of Genesis 2 has been setting up for us. And in particular, what we just read a moment ago is Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 is God's way of showcasing for us there's this particular movement, there's this flow. And there's a, there's a question to consider, are you and I in step with the spirit? Are we in step with the way God has designed things to be? Maybe a, way, a question to ask yourself is this, are you going with or against the flow of God's good design? And one of the ways that we go against the flow of God's good design is when you and I fail to heed the invitation, the great gift that is spoken of here in Genesis chapter two, verses one to three, because it's the gift of Sabbath. And it is a, truly is a gift. I don't know what you grew up with. If you grew up in the church and there were particular rules surrounding the Sabbath, maybe for you, you struggled to actually enjoy, enjoy that day because maybe that was the day you couldn't be in the pool or you couldn't go play sports or you had to be like at church, like the whole day, other than maybe a nap in the afternoon, right? Like, I don't know what it looked like for you. And so the truth of the matter is, as I think oftentimes we can fail to see it as a gift. We can maybe even feel guilty about it as if there's some condemnation because we don't always rest well. But what if we actually saw God's good design? And what if we learned to live more with the flow of how he's created things to be? Not just individually, but also communally and collectively. What kind of witness might that be? What kind of joy might be cultivated? How might it counteract some of the fatigue and the burnout and the anxiety or the, the anger, the frustration that we care if we, if we paid attention to God's good design. And I say that from a posture of, I like aspirationally, I desire to grow in this and improve in this. I'm not here to be like, I've got this down pat, you should follow suit. Like there's a struggle, there's an angst in this. There's a gift that Sabbath is. And oftentimes I fail to open it. I fail to unwrap it. 
which seems absurd when you think about a gift. I mean, think about the joy and the enthusiasm, like as a young child, like Christmas morning, you usually don't just like ignore the gifts. Like, I'll get to those at some other point. It's like, it's everything within you is like just chomping at the bits. Like, I want to open that. And what if we began to view Sabbath that way? And so what I want us to see is we look at Genesis 2, 1 to 3, the first thing is this is the culmination. It's why it really is sort of mislabeled to be put as a separate chapter. This is the culmination. This is where the whole thing has been heading throughout Genesis chapter one. We might think of the back half of Genesis, or sorry, of day six in Genesis one that we read about as the creation of mankind, of humanity, of Adam and Eve. Because it is Adam and Eve that God looks out over and says, all of his creation is good but it's only the creatures that are humanity that he declares, oh, that's very good. It's only Adam and Eve and humanity that bear the image and likeness of God, the Imago Dei, right? It's so unique. And we can hold that up as the pinnacle of creation and we would have good reason to think of it. It's like, yeah, he declared that very good, but we would miss something if we just stopped there. As important as you you and I are to this whole story, day seven is where it's at. Day seven is actually the culmination of this whole week of creation. So again, it begins this way, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So there's this marking of completion, of wholeness, of something that is like, oh, God's gotten it just the way that he wants it to be. And as we go on from there, as we look at verses two and three, Let me read it again and hear some of the repetition of phrases. You'll see some of them highlighted in the text that I put up there. There's an emphasis being put in a couple of different ways. It says, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so there's this repetition of this idea, right? Like he finished the work. It's all the work that he had done, all the work that he had done. God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. And then he sets it apart as holy. It's the only day that is spoken of in that way, that it's designated as set apart, as sacred, as as holy. Like there's this holy time that exists on the seventh day. So something unique that is happening here. And again, it's a reminder, all the work that he had done, We didn't do the work. We didn't contribute. We're just the beneficiaries of God's creative design, his grace, his kindness toward us. That's the way it always is. And then as you saw in the text there, there's this repetition that God wants to communicate through his servant, Moses. Don't miss what day of the week it is, right? Three different times in two verses. It's the seventh day. And in case you missed that, again, it's the seventh day. And in case you missed the two first two reminders, it's the seventh day. And in the scriptures, all right, there can be a lot of weird stuff that happens as, as people try and like interpret numbers or say, oh, this is this you know, significance of this and trying to interpret the end times and all that. We don't have time to get into all of that. But one of the things that is fair to say that is not a stretch to say that a number represents something, the number seven legitimately represents this idea of wholeness, of completeness, of a picture of things as God intended it to be. And so it's no accident 
that the seventh day is marked in a unique way. It is no accident that this happens on day seven. And God wants us not to miss it. It's why he has Moses pen this in this particular way, not just for the ancient Israelites who would have first heard the story, as important as that was, but also you and me and all of us gathered here in the busyness and the nonstopness, the always connected world that we live in with all the distractions and all the things that come flying our way, seemingly around the clock, will you note this is the seventh day? Every other day had a corresponding day. Something was formed and then filled. Day one corresponded to day four, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Day two to day five. Day three of creation to day six. But day seven, like it's on its own. There's something, again, unique that's happening. And the reason it's so important to see that this is a continuation of the opening chapter and the culmination is that number seven, both the direct number, right? And the ways like aspects of it where like you're seeing other numbers show up that are like, oh, um, if you multiply seven by such and such number, you get these certain numbers. And I'll explain that more in a moment. There is an intentionality that you just can't get away with, away from, right? There's like, if you read this, you're like, Oh my goodness, like it's all over the place. So let me just highlight a couple things, all right? As we talk about seven for a moment. In the Hebrew, Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Seven words in Hebrew. So right off the bat, you've got seven words being descri describing this, all leading to the seventh day. If you multiply seven by two, you get 14. I'm very good at math. All right, anyone looking for a tutor? Let me know. Um, and Seven times two, 14. There are 14 Hebrew words in verse two of the Bible. This is not by accident. The name Elohim, God, shows up throughout chapter one in the creation account 35 times. Seven times five, 35, right? The name, the word land shows up 21 times. Seven times three. Skies show up 21 times. All of this is pointing, all of this is leading to get us to see like, oh, there's a completion, a perfection. There's something set apart about this day. And if you and I miss what's happening on this day, the trajectory of our life will not actually follow what God would have for us. And so all of this is just loaded with significance. Tim Mackey, um, uh, he is a Hebrew scholar, a theologian, uh, as one of the scholars who runs the Bible Project, which I would commend uh, to you, maybe you're maybe familiar with his work, says this, Genesis 1 in this story isn't just telling you about what type of world you're living in. It's showing you that your life of worship rhythms are woven into the fabric of the universe. God has designed things in a certain way. There's a certain flow. There's a certain cadence. There's a certain beat. There is a way that he has woven things to be. And the question is, are we joining in? Or are we trying to walk against the flow of how he's designed things to be? And when you and I don't unwrap the gift that is Sabbath, we are walking against the flow of God's good design. Now, one other detail that is fascinating in this is there's things that are said about day seven and there's some things that are unsaid about this day that also speak to us. Because at the conclusion, as we've studied these opening, you know, this opening chapter over the last few weeks together, there's this repeated refrain. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day and on and on it goes. But did you notice as day seven comes to a close, so to speak, 
it doesn't really come to a close. It doesn't say, like the pattern is disrupted. We're expecting it to say day seven, all right? And there was evening and there was morning the seventh day, but it doesn't. And theologians and scholars down through the ages have said, oh, this is another thing that God is showcasing. It's like there's this infinite Sabbath that we're invited into. The fact that it doesn't say there is evening and there is morning means that this sense of completeness, this wholeness, this finishedness, like this is where the story is heading and humanity and all of creation is invited into that space. And it's not that we wouldn't work or do that, but there's this idea like embedded in the very design of the cosmos is this, that the Sabbath, the wholeness, the delight, the shalom of God, right? It is unending. And you and I are invited into that space. Like humanity has been created not to be like the centerpiece of all of creation, but so that they might enjoy the presence of God. That's what's being spoken of in the seventh day. It's finished, it's complete. So there's this unending, enduring Sabbath. It's a way to communicate like, hey, it never stops and it's going forever. Now, those of you who know a little bit about the Bible know that we're gonna, get into what follows Genesis 2, it's Genesis 3, all right? And in Genesis 3, there's rebellion, there's the fall, the disruption, all of these things. But the idea of Sabbath never goes away. In fact, this story, the story about Jesus from beginning and end is about how God is going to be at work to get us back into that Sabbath rest, how he's going to get his people back into the place where they can enjoy the presence of God forever. That's what we've been created for. So now with that context, do you see why this is so important that we understand what's going on here, that this is what we're invited into? Yes, one day, one 24-hour period per week to stop and to rest. Yes, that's the invitation. That's the gift to unwrap. But it's only meant to be like this little appetizer, this little bit that, that prepares us for the ultimate rest that awaits us. You might have the most amazing Sabbath and I hope you do. And I hope that's cultivated. We're gonna talk about our participation in Sabbath here in just a moment. But again, it's just meant to be a signpost in many ways too, to like what ultimately awaits us. So let's look then at this idea of participation, what God invites us into. And one of the places we need to go is to the book of Exodus. So we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. If you've been here, that Moses is the one writing most of what we know of to be this account. He's the one who has led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, all right? They're making their way toward the promised land. That promised land is also regarded as that place of rest, of shalom, right? They're trying to get back there. And one of the things that happens after God delivers them, Moses goes up on the mountain, right? Most of us know, probably know that this story, right? Even if you've got very little church background, you probably heard of the 10 commandments, right? And Moses comes down with the two stone tablets, And the law is given, these commands are given. And I wanna read to you Exodus chapter 20, verses eight through 11 is where the command, this invitation to Sabbath is. Now, it's so important that we keep this in mind. Has the deliverance happened or is it about to happen? It's happened. They were led out of slavery and now God gives them the law. He doesn't give them the law to say, hey, go and do this. Maybe you grew up in a church environment. It's like, you gotta obey this. You gotta get the Sabbath right. You gotta get that so that God will be pleased with you. That's not the storyline of the Bible. He delivers them and then he invites them into this whole way of living where there would be flourishing. And so notice what happens here in Exodus 20 as we hear about this commandment, this fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what is happening here is, for one, it's leveling the playing field. Everybody's invited into this. Everybody needs this day of rest. Doesn't matter your ethnic background, doesn't matter your educational level, doesn't, doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, doesn't matter your gender. Like it literally is like anybody and everybody, even including the animals, like a day of rest. God has built this in. So we might experience all that he has for us. And then it says, it's this reminder, as it says, God rested on that day. What you have here in this commandment, situated right there in the midst of the 10 commandments, is this this reminder that, oh, this is all rooted in creation. God rested. Now, that phrase can be confusing, right? Like God rested, like I rest when I'm tired, all right? Um, It's not uncommon for me to, I'm not great at napping, but like on a Sunday afternoon, I'll kind of hit a wall. And if the coffee's not kicking in, sometimes be like, man, like I need to take a nap, right? God did not need to take a nap. All right, God wasn't worn out. I was like, whoa, that was a week, let me tell you, right? And he's like, let me just kick back for a bit. What rest is speaking to is that he has ceased. That's literally how it's translated. He has ceased from his creative work of creating more. Doesn't mean he's not upholding the universe because he was, right? If God simply stopped doing all of that, like we'd be in a bad spot. He's continuing to sustain everything, but the creative work, he ceased from doing that. And so, what Moses is doing here when he's giving the law to the people, where God is giving this, he's, it's a way really of communicating, hey, are you going to follow suit? Or are you going to believe the lie that somehow you've got to keep the world spinning? Because that's functionally what happens. When I fail to Sabbath well, when I fail to rest well, I'm saying like the world needs Jamie Hart to respond to that, that email. It needs me to keep working on this sermon a, a little bit longer. He needs me to do whatever, like whatever it might be, Right. You can put your responsibilities in and what your life looks like. But when we fail to rest, what we're saying is like, I can't possibly take it. I'll do that some other time. And God himself ceased from the work that he had done. How arrogant is it of me to think that, well, God may have rested, but I'm not going to do that. I'm made in his image and likeness. You're made in his image and likeness. And so why do we not follow suit? I love the way Ruth Haley Barton in her book, Embracing Rhythms of work and rest. And that really is the the rhythm, right? It's there. As an aside, I think it's fascinating as well that the days are talking about, there was evening and there was morning. Like we all woke up this morning, right? Or you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, whatever Monday in the week holds for you and kind of think, okay, my day starts when I wake up. I almost wonder, some of the rabbis spoke of the fact that no, the day started when you laid your head down on the pillow. That's the first part of your day. And so you wake up rested and ready to go. You work from that place of rest. There was evening and there was morning. It's all over the creation. Ruth Haley Barton says this, what if rest has already been created and all I have to do is find ways to participate? What if God has already done the work of creating the sanctuary in time and all I have to do is enter in? What if on this one day a week, I am freed to cease my own work and productivity and can simply be at one with all that has already been created? 
And if this pattern of working six days and then entering into tranquility and peace and happiness and harmony on the seventh has always been there for us, established by God at the very beginning of the created order, how might this change our lives if we fully grasped its significance? So let's explore that together for a moment. How might it change our lives if we grasp this? What does it look like to participate? All of it is telling us there's a way the universe has been designed. Okay, what are we to do? And so I wanna put before you three invitations. This is not an exhaustive way to do Sabbath, but I think these are some categories to be thinking through. What does it look like, all right, along this idea of resisting, resting, remembering, and reveling? We'll talk through those for just a moment. And all of these things, friends, cultivate various aspects in us that, that we need to remember. Because Sabbath is telling us about the story that we're part of. That 24-hour period where we cease, as God did, from doing our work, it's cultivating things in us that, that we need. And so first would be resisting, right? Simply this, you stop doing the work that you're called to do, that you do vocationally. Now, if you're like, hey, I'm retired or the work that I do, I don't get paid for any of that. Like, listen, there's some difficulty in this. There's some nuance. Sometimes you're like, okay, you know what? So my work, you know, part of my work is I'm parenting. I will not parent for the next 24 hours. I understand that like, you can't just let everything go. You're gonna get fed in a day. Just hold on tight, right? Like, I understand that you can't do all that. But in this, the idea is, hey, will you cease to work? Now, there might be types of work that you enjoy doing that are life-giving to you. That would be something I would never look forward to doing. There, there's some freedom in that, right? So you're like, man, I want to work in the yard. I want to, you know, I'm like, I've got a garden. I want to care for whatever it is. Like that, that might be life-giving to you. I would not want to do that, all right? But the call is, hey, whatever your primary responsibilities are, you know, what do you give the most time to? Or the things maybe that you're like, yeah, that's not life-giving. That's kind of this drudgery or what, or, right? Um, or even things that you're like, that's life-giving, but it's what I do most of the time. Like, what does it look like to cease from that for a bit? Because what it does, do you see, it cultivates faith. Faith is this, this response, right? And it's this gift that we're, we're given because we're trying to operate in a space where like, I, I don't exactly know how things are gonna play out, but I'm trusting the one, I'm trusting the author of the story. Because as we looked at week one of the series, in the beginning, God, he's the author, right? He's the, perfect, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who's sovereign. He's the one who's upholding us all right now. And so when I take time for a 24-hour period to cease, to resist doing the normal work and routines, it is an act of faith because it's saying, hey, I trust that the world doesn't need Jamie Hart in this next 24 hours. I love the way Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says it. He says, we stop on Sabbaths because God is on the throne, assuring us the world will not fall apart if we cease our activities. Life on this side of heaven is an unfinished symphony. We accomplish one goal and then immediately are confronted with new opportunities and challenges. We know that to be true, right? But ultimately, we will die with countless unfinished projects and goals. Some of you just got very nervous with that right now. Like, I didn't get to check it off before you got checked off, right? Like, it's like, wait, but that's the reality. There's always gonna be more to do. That's okay. God is at work taking care of the universe. He manages quite well without us having to run things. When we are sleeping, he is working. So he commands us to relax, to enjoy the fact that we are not in charge of his world. And even 
when we die, the world will continue on nicely without us. Cultivates faith. Secondly, there's this call, and closely related is this call to rest. To find things that, that not counterfeits of rest. By counterfeit, I mean, I think we all know that there's those things that you're like, oh yeah, it's not my normal work, but do you really feel rested after it? It's like, I'm 11 episodes in, I've been binging. Like, maybe you do. Or maybe it's like, yeah, I've just watched 17 hours of football. I don't even know who the teams that are playing, but man, I'm really into that. Like, okay, like I'm all for football. I'm all for, all for like watching show, any of that sort of things. But I think we know what we're talking about, right? Like you just get through something. You're like, I don't know that I feel more rested. I don't know that I feel this sense of completeness and wholeness. So what does it look like to find true rest? Like spiritually, emotionally, physically, all, all of it, these things. And when we rest, I put before you this, it cultivates our awareness, reminds us of our need of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's what we're reminded of in this text all throughout. God made, God created, God delivered, God did it. Your story and my story is one of a receiver, not an achiever. And so it doesn't mean that we don't work hard and we don't, we do those things, but we take 24 hours and we stop and we are reminded, oh, that it's all about grace. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight to nine, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, right? Lest we be confused, right? It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Just laid out there for us. Your life is to be a recipient of God's grace. And when you rest and when you Sabbath, it reminds you of what is most true. You are not primarily an achiever or a producer. Now you think about the story of the Israelites being rescued, right? Out of slavery in Egypt. And we looked at this last week where it was like, make more bricks, make more, produce more. You are what you produce. And so closely related to rest is this idea of remembering, that we would remember, that we would immerse ourselves in the story. For many of you, Sabbath is going to be a Sunday and it's part of like gathering together. This is one of the things that we do, not in some legalistic way to get God to love you more, all right? That's not why you're here this morning but you're immersing yourself in the story, helping to remember what is so easy to forget that you are a recipient of his grace, that you don't have to earn. There's nothing left to prove. This is the place where you can come in and not feel like you're on, that you have to be impressive or winsome. It's just like, I'm here. If the week has just been awful and somebody says, how are you doing? I'm not doing well. It's been awful. It's been hard. You might've been expecting me to say, good, how are you? I'm not giving you that, right? We're the church, welcome, right? And so we have that freedom, we remember. And as we remember, I think what it begins to cultivate in us is the love, meaning we're reminded of the love that God has for us, that he rescued us out of slavery. He's rescued us from being slaves to sin, cultivates love for one another as we remember the story of God's amazing love for us. A moment ago, we read Exodus 20, right? There, the fourth commandment, this, this call to Sabbath. And what we have here is another account in the book of Deuteronomy, all right, that speaks of the same commandment, but it speaks of it in a slightly different way. So let me read to you this account out of Deuteronomy chapter five, verses 12 to 15, and you'll see the first few verses sounds almost verbatim like Exodus chapter 20, but then there's a shift toward the end. So here it is, Deuteronomy 5, part of remembering. Observe the Sabbath day 
to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. At that point, it's like, yeah, this sounds a lot like Exodus 20. This is basically communicating the same thing. Couple different details, right? Like the one didn't talk about an ox or a donkey. So they get some, they get a shout out in Deuteronomy, right? But other than that, it's basically the same thing. But then there's a shift. And what takes place here where Exodus is rooting it all in creation, it's not that Deuteronomy disagrees with that, but this account roots it in our salvation. So one is focused on creation and the other is on deliverance and salvation. Verse 15, but you shall remember then that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It's this fresh reminder. Like when we take this time, we immerse ourselves in the story. Maybe that's through reading a book. Maybe that's through listening to to a sermon. Maybe that's any number of things, but like remind yourself, it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. You might hear this phrase every now and again, right? Like preach the gospel to yourself, which I get can be kind of a weird image. It's like, okay, well, I'm gonna get a microphone. And no, but just like, just tell your heart, your mind, like, this is what is true. And maybe when you're struggling to believe it, like call up a friend or ask somebody, like remind me again, like what is most true? Go to God's word and be reminded of what is most true. That your story was one of a slave to sin and God has rescued you and redeemed you. That God is liberating you. Sabbath is a time to remember that story. All week long, you're bombarded and I'm bombarded with what we do, what we got to accomplish. Part of what's so difficult about it is because we know the things that are on the to-do list. We know the things that we didn't get done. We know the things that might be waiting for us at the end of the 24-hour period. But what does it look like to trust and to see our faith cultivated in grace and love? And lastly, um, to, to, we'll get to in a moment, this reveling, but I want to read one more quote. This is A.J. Savoda in his book, Subversive Sabbath. Sabbath is a scheduled weekly reminder that we are not what we do, rather we are who we are loved by. Sabbath and the gospel scream the same thing. We do not work to get to a place where we finally get to breathe and rest. That is slavery. Rather we rest and breathe and enjoy God that we might enter into rest. It's a big difference of those things. And so lastly, I put before you this, this idea, this invitation, this participation of reveling. What are the things that bring you joy? Like, what if you could look out and say, okay, you know, a week from now, I'm gonna have a Sabbath and I can't wait to give some time to like X, Y, or Z. And maybe your situation in life right right now is like because of other commitments and things, like maybe you can't do all the things that you want. Okay, Sure, like, and if you're like, you know, I'm gonna backpack in Europe next week. Great, I hope you get to do it, but you might not be able to, right? But what does it look like to think through the things that might bring you some joy? There's an invitation to revel. I heard one pastor speak of it this way of like, hey, what things can you intentionally do to cultivate joy where you're just stacking pleasures? I'm gonna enjoy this. 
I can't wait to read this. I can't wait to watch that, that movie. I can't wait to go out to dinner to this. It could be any number of things, right? It might be like, I can't wait, right? To like lock myself in a room for an hour of peace and quiet. I don't know what it is, right? But like, what if you began thinking through it and part of your to-do list throughout the week, like, I'm gonna jot that down. Oh, I got that. And you begin thinking through and making a plan. You might not get to do all of the things, but there is this invitation. God is not trying to rob you of joy. And some of us, because of our misunderstandings of Sabbath, can think of it only in the restrictive sense where you can't do these things. But that's not it. Like Jesus shows up and there were lots of people in his time and place who had made Sabbath about what you had to do, hoping to to please God as if like, if you you didn't keep the Sabbath perfectly, there were all these extra laws that were added to it. And it got like ridiculous. I mean, there was literally like all these nuanced scenarios played out. Well, if, uh, you know, if, you know, one of your livestock fell into a well, like, are you allowed to get it out or you have to let it sit there for the next 24 hours? And then how many steps could you take in a day? Like all these things, like trying to think it through. And maybe there was some good in that, but do you understand like how restrictive it felt? And Jesus shows up and says, hey, Sabbath was not, man was not created for Sabbath, but Sabbath was like created for mankind. Like it's a gift, how have you turned this gift into something now that you got to work about, right? And like, it's making it into this miserable thing. What would it look like for you and I just to have that point, like stacking something? Ooh, I want to do this. And I get to do this. The storyline of the Bible, friends, is a God who is at work to bring about joy. And we won't get all of it this side of heaven, but if you have that Sabbath and that period, I'm preaching this to myself right now. So if you want to listen in, that's great. But I know I need this to take that 24-hour period to simply cease from doing what I normally do and to enjoy. And it's this little foretaste of all that awaits. One of the ways the Bible talks about like Sabbath rest, all right, is that God is preparing a feast for us. I love these verses out of Isaiah 25. It says this, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast, not just of regular food that will sustain you, all right, that's important, but of rich food. Like this is a next level feast and a feast of well-aged wine. It's not in a box, all right? Of rich food full of marriage of aged wine, well-refined. So in case we missed it the first time around, there's rich food and this well-aged wine that literally it's the picture of a host who's like, I've been saving this meal and this bottle for you and you're here, come have a seat. There's this feast that's prepared. Like that's the storyline. This is where this story is heading. And Sabbath is that reminder each week that, oh, It's not about what I do. It's about what God has done and the life he's invited me into. And it's not gonna be perfect. And there's gonna be things that interrupt and all of that. We're gonna be frustrated and angsty, I'm sure at times, but know this, like God will meet us in those places. And God has an ultimate Sabbath rest for you and I. And so we have to ask ourselves, I wanna read this quote from Andy Crouch in his book, Playing God. Use it as a diagnostic and be honest with yourself. Like you and I, like, We owe it to ourselves to be honest about these matters because if we're not honest, we're gonna miss out on what God has for us. Crouch says this, there is no quicker way to discern our God playing or image bearing than to take the measure of our Sabbath observance. Is there a day a week when we can honestly say that we do not work? In particular, as our power has increased, so you get more influence, responsibility, all of that. What has happened to our Sabbath observance? Has it become deeper? faithful and more joyful? Or has the idol of false God playing driven us ever more toward busyness and 24-7 control? 
One reliable sign that you are worshiping and playing a false God is when your power has increased, but you find yourself on an ever steeper treadmill, less and less able to rest. This is we think about that and how we navigate that as we try to do our best, right? To resist, to rest, to remember, to revel in these things. The reality is, as I stated before, like so much of this is aspirational. There's so many of these things that I, that I don't do in my own life that I, I want to, by God's grace, to, to grow in. What would that look like for us to do that together? When we hear the words of Andy Crouch there, it's, I think it's this reminder of like, oh, I don't know that I do that. My guess is a lot of you are in that same spot. And when he speaks of that treadmill, we'll close with this. When he speaks of that treadmill, there is a way that we get that imagery, right? Like I'm on this treadmill and everything's just a, just a grind, right? And it's like, I'm working like crazy and I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere, like all of that. And so we'll, we'll use that sort of phrase. We kind of get it culturally. Well, there was another phrase for the ancient people, the people that Jesus would have rubbed shoulders with and he's walking around in that time in that place. And he wouldn't have said treadmill because that wouldn't have made any sense, right? Um, but the people in that time in that place, they would speak of a yoke. And they would, they would speak of this device, right? Which would be placed on the, the back or the shoulders of oxen. And it would be around their neck. And then there would be another one there. And they literally were these beasts of burden, right? And they would, they would plow and they would be used in farming, all the agricultural practices. And they, it was this labor and it was this hard work. And there they were bound to one another. And so that imagery would be used not just to speak of animals, but also it would be used as a way to just kind of describe life. It was kind of their equivalent of the treadmill that we're just always on, right? But it also became known by people in that time and that place as Jesus interacted often, right, with the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the other rabbis. And so many of them would take things like the good gifts that God had given in the Sabbath and even as other laws, and they would add to those laws and they would compound those things. and They would add more and more and more. And then you would seek to follow like a particular religious leader. You'd have a particular rabbi. You'd have a particular teacher of the law that you would follow. And each person would have their own interpretation of things. They'd have their own kind of, yeah, well, God says this, and really follow me and God together. We have all these additional things. And that became known as the yoke. So it wasn't just this farming imagery, though it certainly includes that. It became known as this thing like, oh, if I'm going to follow, I'm going to be yoked to that rabbi, to that teacher of the law. And I got to make sure I obey all of these things. And friends, that is walking against the flow. It's against the grain of how God has designed things to be. And it leads to exhaustion and it leads to burnout. And it leads to that place of just frustration and a short fuse and right, like the anger, all of that. We're a culture that never stops. And it's not just a problem out there, like it's in the church as well. And yet we have this resource that is the Sabbath. And so friends, what we see here really is this invitation. Because in a time and place where the cultural equivalent of just being on the treadmill was to speak of a yoke, there's another rabbi that comes onto the scene and he begins speaking these revolutionary, subversive, countercultural words where he begins to invite people to come to him because he's got a different yoke. And he would speak these revolutionary words, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light that Jesus in his kindness moved toward us. 
that Jesus in his kindness said, I'm gonna take the burden of your sin and your shame and of your, your rebellion. I'm going to go the cro- to the cross. I'm gonna be punished in your place. And there on the cross, as John, John 19, 30 tells us, Jesus declares, it is finished. Like he did the work, he declared, and he ceased to do the work that he had like, came to accomplish because it was done once and for all. He paid for your debt and my debt. And when we understand that, we can begin to enter into the rest. Because when I think about those things, right? Am I obeying Sabbath? Am I opening that gift? Am I resisting and remembering and reveling and resting? No, I'm not doing that the way that that God even invites me into. And Jesus is saying, hey, just come to me. Bit by bit, learn to relinquish things to me, to relinquish the control you think you have, but you really don't have anyway. Just come, let it, let it be and come and rest and know me to be the one that carries your burden. And yes, you're yoked together with Jesus, but he's doing all the work. He has paid the price. And now we get to enjoy a Sabbath that points us to the ultimate rest, the ultimate promised land, new heavens and new earth, where we get to live in the presence of our God and Savior forever. There's a feast that's awaiting us and he's preparing it for us. And so may we as a community experience that. May we have that. May we rest well and enjoy this story that we're part of. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. Thank you that in your kindness, you give them to us as challenging as they can be in this cultural moment where we live. But we thank you that you, by your grace and your design, you have us living in this time and this place to be the church now. Um, And so we thank you for that. We pray that you would help us to be people that would rest well. May we encourage one another in that. And God, would you do that for your glory and our deep joy? Lord, we need your help. We thank you that you are with us. And Jesus, we thank you for being our ultimate rest. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.